The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them, as close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. Who and what are you? Scrooge demanded. I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? inquired Scrooge, observant of its dwarfish stature. No, your past. He then made bold to inquire what business brought him there. Your welfare, said the ghost. Scrooge expressed himself much obliged, but could not help thinking that a night of unbroken rest would have been more conducive to that end. Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Drea, and I always want to be visited by three spirits. And I'm Anne, and I hope to come back in a future life as a Muppet. So in honor of the holidays, we are mixing it up a little bit here on Two Girls and a Grape, and our next three episodes are going to feature not wine, but spirits. This is because I am a huge dork who is obsessed with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which, as everyone knows, features three spirits. So each episode, we'll discuss one spirit and we'll share a cocktail featuring said spirit. So this week's episode is all about my favorite spirit, gin. But before we get started, uh, Drea, do you want to kick us off with our cheers and jeers? Sure. So this episode, I am cheering the Grinch uh, in an attempt to get into the holiday spirit. I just want to say that the Grinch does not get enough credit for being a middle-aged person who has discovered they just want to hang out at home with their dog. So cheers to you, Grinch. And my cheers for this episode is... The Hallmark Channel. That's right. I said it. I said what I said. Fight me. Do you want to tell everyone about the realization you had about the Hallmark Channel that you texted me yesterday? Okay, so first yesterday I was probably drunk. Um, so I'm just going to look look that up real fast. Oh, yeah. I do. Th- okay, yeah. So this is an actual text, everyone. Uh, from me to Anne. Observation, Hallmark Channel movies are all just loose remakes of A Christmas Carol, but with an added layer of unrealistic romantic expectations. I stand by that. They are all the same. They are all either taking place in Manhattan, where people live in unrealistically nice flats for, like, being a personal shopper for $3 an hour or whatever, um, or they're in some, like, country bumpkin town that let's be honest no one wants to go to and is probably inundated with covid right now uh and there's always like some bah humbug grumpy uh man or woman and i'll use those terms because it's hetero as fuck for all of these and then they get visited by the true spirit of christmas or whatever in the form of like a snow globe or like a cat with a bell on its whisker i don't know they're all like this though they're all like this. So I hope if you are watching Hallmark movies this holiday season that now you can't unsee this. Every time you watch one, you will just see A Christmas Carol. 
dressed up in sheep's clothing. Girl, bad sheep's clothing. Like, cheap sheep's clothing. So my cheers is to a Muppet's Christmas Carol, uh, which I have already mentioned on this podcast, and we're only six minutes in. Uh, but I love this film so much. It is an absolute classic. I love it with all of my heart. I base, I think, my entire morality on it. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful film. If I don't see it at least three times every season, basically it hasn't been Christmas. So it's great. And cheers to the one and only Michael Caine. He's an absolutely brilliant man. He plays a brilliant Scrooge. And the best Scrooge. it's just the best. If you haven't seen it, don't let another year go past without watching it. Have you read um, Michael Caine's autobiography? I have so not. So you should. And he talks about starring in A Muppet's Christmas Carol. And prior to that, he had, he had sort of had a string of not-so-great films. And as many of us know, it was this film, The Muppet's Christmas Carol, that kind of like resurrected his career in terms of introducing him to a new younger audience. And he talks a lot about how much fun it was to work on that movie. And he's, his voice is so joyful when you read that book. <laughs> it's such a nice contrast to his character, but I absolutely recommend it if you haven't read it yet. I'm going to see if he does the audio, but if there is an audio book and if he is the narrator, and then that might be one of my Christmas presents to myself. I love this. I also love Christmas presents to yourself. Um, well, speaking of books, that brings me to my jeers. Uh, this is a little dark, Drea, and a little uh, weird. But my jeers is to myself yet again. And my fearful realization that I have only a specific number of books left to read in my life. I don't know if you think about this, but I had this English teacher and friend... Uh, tell me one time about how she would lie awake at night basically calculating like if I read this many books in a year and my lifespan is this long how many books do I have left and let me tell you that is not a comforting number wow. um, and when I was 18 I was like this is not a problem that I have and sometime fairly recently like within the last year I was like oh this is now a problem I really have and so I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, how many books I have left to read and every time I, I start to read one that I don't like, I'm like, fuck, this is ruining my count. That's intense. <laughs> wow. And on that note, shenanigans. Well, okay. Well, dredging up all the ghosts of Christmas past this year. It's so I mean, funny. I'm just, you know, I guess like, like every time I read a book, there's just the in impending... Okay. Shadow of death. O okay, impending shadow of death. Just read more. How about that? How about you just read more? But even if I read more, the knowledge of death is something we all must live with. Wow. People are going to stop. <laughs> Our four listeners are going to stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> Have some holiday cheer, everyone. You're going to die. <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of the messages in A Christmas Carol. Did you go to therapy this week? Let's I hope so. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, good. Let's get on with the episode to the drinking part. Yeah, it sounds, that sounds great. Okay, so now that we've all been confronted with our impending death, um, yeah, let's move right on into our shenanigans segment. So what we thought for this episode was since for both of us, Reading A Christmas Carol is a much-loved and treasured Christmas tradition, as is watching The Muppets Christmas Carol, that we could share or describe a memory or a Christmas tradition that we have in our family. Uh, So, Anne, please try and keep it together and not make this morbid as fuck. What what you got for us this episode? I think you'll really like this one. Mm -hmm. I think I'm about to turn it around right now. Um, (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) So one of the the things that my family does, um, basically, for many Christmas Eves, probably not all of them, but, but it became a real tradition for us, especially as my sister and I got a little older, was we... We were always kids who loved reading aloud and we loved being read to. Like that was a really important part of our childhood. Our dad read to us basically every night. So on Christmas Eve, we would read as a family different Christmas stories out loud. Um, And if they were, you know, full on novellas like A Christmas Carol or stories that kind of had a a scene at Christmas, but weren't totally about that, we would sort of read that selection as well. So obviously, A Christmas Carol always made an appearance. We also loved a couple of short stories by the author Saki. Um, Reginald's Guide to Christmas Presents was a really great one. Um, And Birdie's Christmas Eve, I think was the name of the other one. Both great short stories, really funny. And you know, we read A Child's Christmas in Wales and Parts of A Christmas Carol. And just that was, that's one of the really nice memories that I have of growing up is sort of everyone being around the Christmas tree and sort of the lights being turned down low and the tree kind of giving off this like colorful glow and just, you know, taking turns reading different, different Christmas stories. Um, it was really magical. And if you're looking for a tradition to add to your family, uh, highly recommend this one. Very nice. That That is rather sweet. I don't think it completely excuses your rant on death earlier, but it, it, you, you're getting there. You're making some headway. <laughs> what about you? What do you? What is your uh, Christmas memory or Christmas tradition? So when I was a kid, Christmas was always kind of rough because... As an only child, um, my little family was considered to be, like, one of the more mobile households. And so, at Christmas time, we really didn't get time at home. Uh, Like, Christmas Eve, we went to two houses. Christmas Day, we went to three different houses. Like, it was just a lot of running around all the time. And, you know, as when you're a kid, I think that that's tough. Um, I was also, even as a wee little one, you know, kind of different from my cousins, a little like weird, a little off kilter. So it wasn't like it was the most fun for me to be out on Christmas um, all the time. But one of the things that I always enjoyed about 
our house for Christmas time was some of the traditions that we had with our decorations. And so um, when I was a kid, my parents would always put up a ton of decorations and they don't, they don't do it now, but I do it in my own home. And one of my favorite decorations and the thing that we would always say for when we got back um, from the, the rounds of the day were our Christmas stockings. And our Christmas stockings were hand-knitted stockings. My grandmother on my mother's side knew someone who made these stockings and she had had them made for everyone on that side of the family, including the spouses and the grandkids. So we all have these matching hand-knitted stockings with a Santa on the front and on the front they have our names and on the back they have our last names, which is super cool. And there's just something, you know, reassuring about seeing those stockings year after year after year and having them as kind of that um, memory of family time, you know, and the, the quiet time at home. And so now when we do Christmas at my house, John and I have you know, stockings that I purchased when we were married so we could kind of match, but my parents still bring theirs. And I have some decorations that my mother has handed down to me over the years. So I have some handmade little angels that my great-grandmother made. And I have the first nativity set that my parents bought that was this little, you know, tiny plastic set from the 70s. Um, so I put that out every year and kind of those little pieces that remind me of all the, the Christmases past and the good times and the desire to make new memories. God, this, this episode's really all over the place in terms of emotions. <laughs> I, I mean, same. I was like, oh, this is what it's really all about. Aww. It's about the memories. It's about the Christmas cheer. I refuse to let my heart grow three sizes today, so we need to get on with it. Jen! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now that we have confronted death and have the warm fuzzies once again, it is time for us to be visited by the first of our Christmas spirits, which is... Jen. Uh, and Anne, you had quite the experience prepping for this episode. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, I feel a little bit vindicated and I can't wait for you to share all the details with our listeners. So uh, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you picked Jen and how it went. So I picked gin because it is my absolute favorite spirit to drink. I actually think I might drink gin over just about anything right now. And researching it was really fun, but I do have to say, I, I have to apologize to you, Drea, for all of the shit that I've given you uh, when I've been editing these podcast episodes about how much research you do, because it was actually really hard to sum up the history of gin in just a couple of pages. I get it a little bit more now, <laughs> not fully, but a little bit. It's actually really hard to say everything you wanna say about about a topic in like two or three pages. So I decided for this episode, I'm not actually going to try to sum up the whole history of gin for you because it is, it goes from like the, the ancient Middle East to the medieval period 
all the way to like the 1960s and the gin renaissance that we're in today. So that's like a long time to cover and I'm just not going to do it. So ha. Um, instead, I thought I would tell you about one of the most important moments in gin's history, which is the gin craze in London, which took place from 1720 to 1750. So this was a really important 30 years in gin history. And if you want to know more about like everything that ever has happened to gin or related to gin, uh, I really encourage you to check out Leslie Jacob Salmonson's book, Gin, A Global History. Um, It covers pretty much everything, like I said, all the way from, you know, the invention of distillation to basically up to like the 2010s was I think when this book was published. I also read an article in the New Yorker from 2019 called The Intoxicating History of Gin by Anthony Lane. Uh, And that was also really good. So if you don't want to read a whole book, The New Yorker has got you covered. Gin is defined as a clear alcoholic spirit distilled from grain or malt and flavored with juniper berries. Gin today is produced in a number of different ways with a wide range of herbal ingredients, giving rise to a number of distinct styles. After juniper, gin tends to be flavored with things like citrus or orange peel and spices like anise, angelica, licorice, and literally like a thousand other spices. The list was like a paragraph long. Since ancient times, juniper has been thought to be a medicinal plant, and it was used to treat everything from headaches and toothaches to unwanted pregnancy. Uh, The development of gin was made possible, like I said earlier, when Arab alchemists discovered the process of distilling alcohol. And then the first proto-gin was made by Benedictine monks in Italy to treat bladder and kidney problems. I told you it was medicine. All I know is, if I'm feeling crummy, I'm like, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure this used to be used for medicinal purposes, so I think it's fine. (laughs) It definitely did. Um, So after the uh, alchemists and the Benedictine monks Uh, The Dutch and the Belgians took it to the next level by distilling malt wine with juniper berries for a drink they called Univer, which was basically a precursor to today's gin. Uh, And because they're Dutch and huge colonialists, the Dutch East India Company spread Univer all over the world. So jumping ahead just a little bit, not quite to the gin craze yet, but in 1688, William of Orange and his wife Mary overthrew Mary's father, King James, and took over the throne of England. And this is important historically for many reasons that probably many other podcasts will cover. But the reason that we're going to talk about today is that William was Dutch and a Protestant who drank a lot of Univer. Uh, And his influence on England was pretty obvious. From 1684 to 1710, gin production rose by 400% in England. So now getting to the start of the gin craze. I know. It started around 1720, and scholars consider it to be the first modern drug scare. So to understand (laughs) it, you have to really understand 18th century London. This was a city on the brink of modernity, but it was not quite there yet. Immigrants were flocking to the city, and demand for labor meant that there were higher wages, but, you know, it, w- it wasn't like the poor suddenly had like really great living conditions. Um, they did have a little bit more disposable income and they needed something to spend it on. So in addition to kind of this influx of people and cash, there were a couple of other factors that led up to this craze. Um, so in 1689, British Parliament banned all imports on French spirits. 
So there was nothing particularly fancy being imported. And secondly, if you were a person who distilled spirits, you were exempt from having to house soldiers in your home. And if you remember your American history, quartering soldiers was one of our key complaints leading to the Revolutionary War. So this was kind of a big deal. You could make your own gin and you wouldn't have to keep soldiers in your house. It was kind of a win-win situation. With these factors in mind, by 1733, London alone produced 11 million gallons of legal gin, not even illegal gin. This was just the stuff they were counting. And that was enough for 14 gallons per person per year. Doing the math, this means that about one out of every four residents, essentially all of the city's poor, was completely and utterly smashed most of the time. Hence the phrase, gin craze. So some scholars do consider the word craze to be a misnomer. Um, It is true that obviously 25% of people were drinking at any given time, and that's pretty epic, even for London. Uh, But it was more likely that physical and psychological effects of poverty, uh, rather than, you know, gin being so great, is what led to excessive consumption. Um, So it wasn't like there was suddenly this new development of like, a madness or an insanity. It was just that, uh, you know, (laughs) being poor really sucks and makes people want to drink away their problems. And we're back to um, this grim-ass episode. <laughs> Look, I didn't say it was going to be light and bright. I said it was going to be factual. So, obviously, uh, the upper classes did not care for this. They didn't like their fancy Dutch univer being consumed, even if it was being made as a cheap rot gut kind of way, um, by the lower classes. They also didn't like that women and men could both drink in gin dram shops, and women could even become proprietors. Unlike beer or ale, uh, there was no nourishment to be found in gin, so it couldn't be used to force more labor out of the working class. It was basically every rich person's nightmare. And as with modern drug epidemics, politicians pushed the narrative that gin consumption was leading to an increase in crime, and newspapers of the day printed some pretty ghastly stories uh, about mothers murdering their babies so they could spend all their time drinking that sweet, sweet gin. This is probably wildly overstated, um, and while gin probably didn't help with crime, it's much more likely that the absolutely miserable conditions people were living in contributed to any crimes that they might have committed. So along with these sort of bullshit complaints, there were also legitimate problems with the quality of gin at this time. So to make gin cheaper and readily available to the masses, distillers were using low-quality grain to produce neutral spirits, and then they cut that with turpentine and sulfuric acid and enhanced it with ingredients like sugar and lime water to mask the flavors. Yeah, it wasn't just like, oh, this is bottom barrel shelf stuff. It was like, this legitimately killed people. Yeah, like, this is going to make you go Um, blind. That's like wood grain alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, like, you are going to die. And the other thing to consider is that gin at this time was approximately 160 proof, which is double what is typical for today's gin. And again, 160 proof, one shot of that won't kill you, but most people were consuming, like, half a liter a day. (laughs) So... Oh, some things never change, just the season. (laughs) Might kill you. So 
All this is happening, and over sort of these 30 years, Parliament passes a ton of laws known as the Gin Acts to try to limit and control drinking of the working classes and poor. Again, not because they actually cared about the health and well-being of the working poor, but because it was a way to control uh, society and to stay in power. By 1751, gin consumption was already starting to fall off. Um, In part, maybe the novelty had kind of worn off. um, But more likely, uh, in the second half of the 18th century, people saw a dramatic decline in wages. And so they had less disposable income to spend on gin, also on things like housing and food. Following the gin craze, In 1756, there was a major crop failure, and Parliament banned the use of domestic grains for distilled spirits, and the government continued to levy taxes on spirits through the rest of the century. So gin kind of lost its sort of magic with the populace, but she would return, don't you fear. And gin has always kind of gone through these periods of ups and downs ever since sort of the gin craze. Um, And people have always had real feelings about uh, drinking gin, especially when it came to the poor and women. Won't someone think of the women? Um, And this is in part what led to the 19th century temperance movement who found lower class public drunkenness really distasteful. And actually, I thought this was really fun and interesting. So even though it's a little bit past the gin craze, I wanted to tell you about it. Um, But one large and obnoxious critic of gin was actually George Cruikshank, who was the illustrator for Charles Dickens. So when you think of like the classic um, pictures of Scrooge or Pickwick or any of those any of those famous characters, George Cruikshank was kind of the illustrator of those. And his views on drinking actually cost him his friendship with Charles Dickens, who was a much more moderate guy. And I wanted to share this quote with you because I think it really reflects the way that Dickens understood the impact of poverty in a way that his middle and upper class readers really didn't. So Dickens said, or wrote, I'm not sure which, gin drinking is a great vice in England, but wretchedness and dirt are greater. And until you improve the homes of the poor or persuade a half famished wretch not to seek relief in the temporary oblivion of his own misery, gin shops will increase in number and splendor. So basically he was saying, you can't be mad at the poor for taking what pleasure they can from life if you continue to deny them basic rights and services that would give them a leg up in the world. So like I said, gin has gone through a lot of other ups and downs in its history. Um, Right now, we're in a bit of an upswing. This is kind of considered a gin renaissance, and gin is more popular today than it has been in decades, and I love it. So should we talk a little bit about what we are drinking today, Drea? Absolutely. My personal favorite brand of gin and what I'm drinking today and basically every time I'm drinking gin is Future Gin. And actually, this is a brand you introduced me to, Drea, but it's a Californian gin brand. It's woman-owned and operated, and it's got really bright flavors of Meyer lemon, honeysuckle, and grape leaf uh, alongside the traditional juniper and other botanicals. It's also got this really gorgeous retro label, uh, and you know I'm a sucker for a good label. But what are you, what do you like to drink when you are drinking the gin? 
So like with wine, it all depends on the occasion for me with gin. So at any point in time, I have four to six different gins in my house, which is proving that I'm just an alcoholic, apparently. <laughs> no, but I use them for different things. So uh, with the cocktail that we'll be making today, I think Future is a great choice. Um, today, I am using actually a different gin, though, because I ran out of Future. I am using uh, a gin from Cutwater, which is a distillery located in San Diego. Um, and it's a really solid, very classic, you know, um, juniper style gin that's great for a mixed drink that is going to be fruit forward. So I picked that up for, for this particular cocktail. But I typically drink, I'm, I'm more of a purist, as, as some of us already know, and I love a gentleman's cocktail. So if I'm doing, you know, a more spirit forward cocktail, I prefer a Mediterranean style gin. So I really love Gin Mare. I love Gin Raw. Both of those are coming out of Spain. Um, I recently got really into Nordis Gin, which is also a Mediterranean style blend. So those are going to have, um, they're going to be softer in the citrus notes and have a lot more herbaceousness to them, uh, which I really love. And that's a style that you're starting to see a little bit more in the States as well. Uh, up in Northern California, St. George Distillery has very herbaceous style gins that I like a lot. So yeah, it really depends on the occasion and the type. If I'm out at a restaurant, I always want a Tanqueray Martini. So there we go. You have to read this book about... Uh global gin because Tanqueray was one of the brands that like really shifted things for gin when it was in one of its low periods the creation of um Tanqueray Sapphire no Bombay Ooh. Sapphire Bombay Sapphire um, well anyway Tanqueray big <laughs> name in gin for a long time yeah I mean I think that when you're out and about like the bar or the restaurant um that does more classic cocktails you're like, you're going to find the big three, right? You're going to find Tanqueray, Bombay Sapphire, and Hendrix. And I mean, and then Beefeater would be the next one, but really like a London dry style gin, right? So now that we've talked about some of our favorites and the fact that I'm a raging alcoholic, tell us about the first cocktail spirit that's visiting us this holiday season. So for our first Christmassy cocktail... Uh, I wanted to make something kind of classic, but also kind of a little whimsical. So I went for a beet and ginger gin martini based off a recipe from the website Salt and Wind. For this cocktail, you will need a juice made from apple, ginger, and beets. You can make that yourself. Salt and Wind provides instructions, but in the words of the great Ina Garten, store-bought is fine. Uh, and just get as close as you can to, to those ingredients. So being in New York, I just went to my local bodega and had them make me a juice. But juices are popular, guys. Just get get a juice and don't worry too much about it. And definitely don't spend a million hours on this. Um, you'll also need ginger simple syrup, which you should make at home. That's pretty easy. And lemon juice or lime juice and the gin of your choice. So just... Take all those ingredients, combine them with ice in a cocktail shaker, shake it like a Polaroid picture, and uh, pour it into a coupe or a martini glass, or drink it straight from your shaker. I'm not here to judge. 
So that is the basic recipe and we'll put the actual um, ounces in the show notes and in the Instagram stories um, so you can follow along and try it out there. But Drea, I know you you said you made a few adjustments. So I'm curious uh, how you took the base of this martini and made it your own. So full disclosure, I'm a booze hound. That's the first thing. Um, I'm sure that's shocking to everybody at this point. Well, but I think full, full disco- disclosure, one thing that the two of us have learned in our friendships is that we actually do not have the same taste in drinks at all. Like, literally, all. Drea will go to the bar, order something, love it. I'll take a sip of it, and it's like, oh, this is not my drink. This is not for me. <laughs> and, and vice versa. Yep, 100%. We were at this very swanky martini bar uh, in San Diego called Born and Raised. And I ordered a martini because that is, in fact, my drink. And their martinis are legendary there. Uh, and so Anne says, I want one. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you, I always want to sure? be a girl who drinks a martini. I was like, are you sure you want this? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we select one for her because I have a whole menu of martinis that I'm like, okay, this gin is probably a bit more floral every single one was a, a mistake it's gonna be great comes she's excited she looks gorgeous we take a photo she has a sip i look at her face i instantly say you hate it and she's like yes i hate it <laughs> and i think i like i think i just drank my martini and your martini and you ordered a gin fizz which is fine so yeah we are very different alcoholics is what all of this is to say. When Anne sent me the recipe for this particular cocktail, I was like, well, mama's going to need to make some modifications. Uh, And you can too. I mean, for my brand that I own with two other partners, Valley Road Collective, we do uh, cocktail kits. And they're recipe kits with all the little accoutrements, add your own alcohol, and we, you know, give you some ideas for how to jazz up your cocktail pairing. Um, And I'm the lead recipe writer and designer on those. And for me, cocktails should be decadent, yet also simple. You don't need to go out and buy a bajillion things for one cocktail. You know, if you have a fairly well-stocked bar and a few simple ingredients lying around, you can make a really banging cocktail. And the three things I always have on hand in addition to, you know, liquors, obviously, are citrus, fresh herbs, and bitters. And if you've got those three things, you're solid. And we're not that far off with with this cocktail. So there's not a ton of ingredients here. You've got your beet juice. And for the record, we both used shop-purchased beet juices. So nobody's got time yeah, to make their no. own, own and, juice. That's ridiculous. And here's the fucked up part of this. I have a fucking massive beet in my refrigerator that came in my CSA farm box last week. And for a hot second, I was like, oh, I really should make my own beet juice. Like, no. I went to Sacred Juice Co. and bought one. It's fine. The juice I bought is, it's like beet, apple, ginger, carrot, maybe something else. But it sounded a little bit sweeter than what the original recipe called for, which is essentially beet and ginger, right? And lemon. So I figured, okay, it's already going to double down on some of the sweetness. I am not a sweet cocktail drinker by any means. So I eliminated the simple syrup to give it more of that 
citrus herbal forward feel to it. See, and I cannot imagine doing that. I think I would hate this if it was if there wasn't some straight up sugar. I also increased the gin. I increased the gin. That was my other trick. Uh, but you know, feel free to play with these recipes. Is is what we're getting at, so that it really does suit your taste. What I will say about this cocktail that's really nice is. It can be made ahead and it can be made batched. And so if you're entertaining and you want to do a cocktail, you know, course or have a signature cocktail, this is definitely something that you could pre-mix and then shake table side for your guest. I wouldn't do it as like a punch bowl or in a pitcher. I was going to ask. Right, no, you are going to have some sediment, right? Just like, th I mean, think about the pet gnats we've featured on the show. And so what I would recommend is, and this is actually what I did because I currently have a full house. So I made about four of them at a single time. I pre-mixed them. I put them in a glass, a large glass mason jar. And then I, right before it was ready, I put it in the fridge and right before it was ready to serve, um, I added it to a shaker with some ice and served it up in a martini coupe. So, oh, the other thing I added to this for myself was bitters. I used a um, very floral forward bitter that I thought would complement and cut a little bit of the um, tartness of the beets called Love Potion. What I think is funny is that you have a full house. You batched this and did four at a time. I am the only person in my apartment who will be drinking this tonight. And I also batched and I made three because <laughs> I just know I'll want more later. Well, there you go. You also have that massive blue to-go cup that you like to put cocktails in, so. <laughs> I am using a real fucking coupe. Wow. I had to borrow one from a friend. <laughs> but I did. So, Anne, why don't you tell us a little bit about what was appealing to you about this particular recipe? So, one of the things that really appealed to me about it was the beets. Beets and ginger is a flavor combination that I just really like a lot of the time. But thinking about the holidays in particular, the color of this cocktail combination really spoke to me. This is a very, very vibrant reddish pink color. Throw a sprig of rosemary in there and it is going to be a bomb looking holiday drink. Like this will be nice to look at if you're having a little party, a little get together, a little whatever. I'm definitely going to remake this when my sister and I are hanging out in Colorado with our parents because it just, it looks really pretty. It looks very festive. Yeah, it's a gorgeous, it's a very pink color. It's a very like, it almost looks like a cranberry, like the color of a cranberry. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it is very festive. As far as cocktails go, it's actually really light. You know, gin is, I think, a spirit that really plays well with a larger audience. It's not like the gin craze where it's 160 proof anymore. <laughs> In fact, it's probably one of the lighter spirits that you could serve for the holidays. I mean, as long as you're not doing just like a straight up gin martini with a vermouth rinse, you know what I mean? And so I feel like yeah. you know, gin is a spirit that you can serve up. It's great for mixing, um, that you can do a lot of different ways. Well, and so that leads me to one of the questions that I had. So this to me, this, like I said, this is called like a, a beet ginger martini. I drink this and I feel like 
yeah, this is about as much martini as I want. But as we've already discussed, I'm not a martini drinker. So for you, like, would you actually consider this a martini? Is this a a martini, technically speaking? Okay, so there are two answers to this question. Technically, like, I guess it would be under the martini listing at whatever restaurant. Um, Like, aesthetically, no. (laughs) A martini to me is is, is chin, vermouth, and olives. That's it. That's my martini. That's what I want. But of course, you know, the the concept of a martini. Get this abomination out yeah, of here. Yeah, the concept of a martini. This is ruining Christmas now. Um, the concept of a martini, though, has, has obviously evolved quite a bit, just like the history of gin itself, right? And in fact, a large number of, I'll call them flavored martinis. How about that? are not even made with gin, they're made with vodka. And so you think about, like, your Cosmopolitan, your Lemon Drop, and just to be clear, like, she went through that phase too, okay? I've I've done my Sex in the City days, it's fine. The Cosmo was a, my drink for a long time. Um, and then it was a vodka martini, and then eventually it was just a, a classic gin martini. Well, and let me just, let me just tell you real quickly, again, because I didn't add this into the history section because my notes were already like four pages long but that was a really intentional decision actually by Smirnoff to invest in the American market they paid so much money to be featured in the James Bond 007 to be his drink of choice as a a vodka martini shaken not stirred Um, before that it really was a gin martini was really the what a martini was by default when vodka started to rise in kind of the American drinking palette, that was really when the shift started to happen. And and like I said, it was an intentional marketing campaign um, to really shift to shift drinkers from gin to vodka. I mean, vodka is a cheaper spirit to pr- to produce and to purchase, and it's also I mean I think a lot of people would argue you know I'm just gonna say it's a more versatile spirit because it really takes on the flavor yeah it's very yeah natural. of whatever you're mixing it with so if a mixed drink is your jam and you're not necessarily a spirit enthusiast like you could make this with vodka do you know what I mean like you could make this cocktail with vodka the original recipe on the website I got this from did make it oh, vodka, and I was like, out. whatever. <laughs> I will the not. The truth comes out, yeah. If this is not your drink, what else can you do with gin? A Negroni. And a Negroni is going to be great for the holidays, and I'll tell you why. One, it's an aperitif, so, you know, anything that's made with, like, vermouth or Campari, both of which are in a Negroni, it's going to open up the stomach. So it's a great first course um cocktail it's a great like cocktail for while you mingle it's a great cocktail for while you're sitting on your sofa at 5 p.m after work or whatever like it's just a good time cocktail two it's really beautiful like the campari and the vermouth are going to give it that festive bright red coloring um so it's going to be like a nice showpiece for your holiday gathering as well um my secret to the ultimate Negroni is twofold. One, for a vermouth, I like a blood orange vermouth. That is um, a really specific kind of citrus forward flavored 
vermouth. And remember, uh, vermouth is made from red wine, right? So they're really using blood orange rinds. They're using herbs to really bring out that brightness um, as they make the vermouth. And then the other thing I do, and I learned this trick from my favorite bar in the world, um, which is Mundas in Barcelona in El Borne. And they infuse their Campari with espresso beans. You take a bunch of Campari, you throw it in a jar, mason jar, whatever. And then you throw a bunch of beans in it, espresso beans in it. And you just let that hang out in your fridge for, you know, however long you want. I recommend about 48 hours. And then you strain out the beans, you rebottle the Campari, and that's what you use to make your Negroni. Campari is a bitter liquor, so you would think it would overpower that and become too bitter, but it picks up the subtle flavor notes in the beans. So like that toffee and chocolate, um, chicory, like those types of flavors that the beans give off is what gets infused into the Campari. And it just creates a Negroni that's incredibly decadent and and luscious with a rich texture that is perfect for the winter time. I love to hear you talk about Negronis, <laughs> and I know they are not my drink. I know. In the I same know. way that a martini is not my drink. So for me, like if I wasn't, if I was looking for something else to make with gin, I would go in the direction of a gin fizz. Like I already said, I think this is like as much martini as I would ever want. Um, which is to say martini is in the name and that's about it. I, I think like if I was going to do a different holiday drink with gin, I would go for a gin fizz and I'd probably like throw in a sprig of rosemary and some cranberry juice for color. I think the brightness of like a ginger and the tartness of cranberry would pick up like some fun and excitement. But I think that goes back to like what we're always talking about on this podcast is like, you have to know what you like, you have to know what you enjoy. And honestly, you also kind of have to know if you're thinking about like for the holidays, what do your guests enjoy? What do they like to drink? And be ready to sort of adjust according to that, which is why I say just throw a bottle of gin out there and let people go to town (laughs) or something. All of this is to say is cocktails should be fun. And they should be imaginative and they should be pleasing to drink. Like, just like with wine, like if you don't like it, don't drink it. Like as as Anne has told us all today, life is apparently way too life short. Life is too short <laughs> to drink bad cocktails. So here we are. So what would you knowing that we made slightly different cocktails and yours is more spirit forward? What would you pair this drink with in terms of food? I believe in very easy holiday entertaining. And so I like to make appetizers. I would serve this with an appetizer course that you can make a lot of very quickly. And what I would do, honestly, with something that has this kind of um, herbaceousness behind it with both the juice and the gin is I would do like a little puff pastry brie bite. Super easy. You cut up a bunch of stuff, you put it on a baking sheet, and in 10 minutes you have a cute little appetizer. Done. Throw some fucking fig jam on there. 
drop little sprig of rosemary and it looks festive as fuck. Done. So that's what I would serve with this. Something snacky. I mean, you could do warm spiced nuts too, I think would be really nice with this. Um, you could do this with a salad course. Although I gotta be honest, I went out to dinner last night and I always wanted want a salad and I was like, ugh, it's, it's sort of winter. I don't want a salad. I tried to eat a salad yesterday and I ended up throwing most of it away for the same reason of like, it's cold. I don't want to eat cold vegetables. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not cold here, but as we discussed, I'm in hardcore denial. So I got the tomato soup instead. Very festive. Mm -hmm. It's, it's creepy to me how aligned we are in terms of what we're thinking right now, because For food. I also went immediately, even with like the differences in our cocktail where mine is, mine is definitely sweet. Um, I went to an artichoke dip as oh, nice. what I want to, to eat this with. So my aunt and uncle make this really delicious artichoke dip that I have veganized. And literally every holiday that I spent with them, everyone would drink champagne and eat this artichoke dip and then not be hungry for actual dinner. So I would make the vegan version of that, which like, again, when you were talking about a brie, it's like, it's creamy, it's cheesy, it's warm it's yummy and then when I was thinking about like okay but like what would you actually what what food would you actually eat this with I did also think of a salad and there's this great even though I'm not in the mood for salad right now there's this great salad recipe um in this cookbook that I have called by Chloe from the the creator of the restaurant by Chloe in New York City um and she does this amazing Italian chop salad that would be really good with this. Um, so if it was summer and if I was in the mood for a salad and for some reason having this drink, that's what I would have. I also, as you were talking about the salad, I thought of a soup recipe that I really love. And it's from Jose Andres' latest cookbook, which is Vegetable Forward. And he makes a fennel and potato bouillabaisse soup. So it's, it's vegan, it's delicious, it is all those lovely, yummy flavors, and I think the sweetness of the fennel and the heartiness of the potatoes would complement this cocktail really well, too. So what would be a situation... What holiday situation would you drink this drink with? When my guests are just arriving and I'm kind trying to keep everyone busy and the fuck out of my kitchen. Uh, I, you know, I like command of my own kitchen. Like, I just saw this great meme that, the other day that was like, who the fuck thinks cooking is romantic? Like, get the fuck away from me. I'm busy. <laughs> so uh, I am very much like that that cook in the kitchen. And so I feel like this would keep people occupied. It's festive. It's pretty. And the flavor profile is is interesting enough that it's going to be a conversation starter. So um, yeah, let them like all do their thing somewhere that is not in your fucking way. <laughs> Great. How about you? What I was thinking of was like a cocktail. Like, I don't ever do this as a holiday thing because I'm from a family of introverts but like think about a Christmas movie and how there's always a scene with like a big holiday party cocktail style this is the drink that I would want served that I like this would be my signature like oh it's the Cantor Christmas family party with the weird martini um this is what I would serve I think it's a great drink for milling around it's a great drink for having with hors d'oeuvres it's like an early evening drink 
Um, and, and yeah, just like you said, it keeps people busy. It keeps people talking. It'll look nice in a bunch of glasses on a tray. I'm fully imagining myself in a rom-com right now. Do you want to come over and watch Hallmark Channel with my mom? Because she could probably use someone who is way less obnoxious than me right now. No, I just want to watch Last Christmas again. Fine. I was... And then I'm up. It's Christmas Carol. I was really treating... Like, if your mom wants to do that... Probably. I mean, I think she's here for all of it. I was really trying to do my best impersonation of Mystery Science Theater yesterday while she was watching these movies. And let me tell you, she was not amused. All right, what are you playing at your party? What music are you playing? If you say Christmas music, I will absolutely shoot you. (sighs) I do, I have to be really honest, the the person who came to mind was Michael Buble. He's got a Christmas album. I fucking lied. That was ridiculously cheesy. That was that's worse. That is actually worse than like (laughs) it just feels right. I'm gonna listen to some 40s mix. Like, give me some Benny Goodman, give me some Ella Fitzgerald, something like that. Well, like, I'm just gonna say we're drinking different drinks right now. Um, I guess the other I mean the other direction that I would go just to like Mostly as an attempt to salvage our friendship and this podcast. I think maybe like Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett's Christmas album. I might tolerate that. Just maybe. Thanks. Just maybe. Thanks. I'll try. I'll try really hard. I've I've turned the buble down until you leave the party. Great. I appreciate that. And then that. when you're gone and I'm washing dishes, it's coming back up. What Anne forgets, though, is like, I never leave. I just keep hanging out. <laughs> Girl, I don't forget that. I'm like, it's 9 p.m. Go home. Get out. <laughs> like, I can't. The spot. Are you planning to sleep here? Maybe. Because I am about to put my pajamas on. Do what you gotta do. Not bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> What are you reading? When the guests have gone home, what are you reading? Uh, So during this time of year, again, remember, I'm pretending like it's not 80 degrees outside. I I kind of like to read like slightly gothic tales, like things that feel wintry to me. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to read something like a little, a little creepy, I think. A little uh, whimsical, vaguely fantasy-ish. Um, this is a, this is a cocktail that I feel like a book like *The Gollum and the Gingy* would go really well with, for example. I don't know what that is, but it sounds great. Oh, it's a, it's you would like it. You would like it. You should, you should pick that up on your next library run. What are you reading? I know I already mentioned this on the podcast, but I would go for Saki. Um, I think his short stories are so funny and especially some of the Christmas themed ones would play really nicely with the season. But honestly, like, like he writes about the British upper crust at a time when gin was an extremely popular drink. And it's just so easy to imagine some of his characters or his narrators doing their crazy shenanigans with a gin drink in hand. If you haven't read Birdie's Christmas Eve, it is up on the internet. Make it happen. It's like right up there with a Muppet's Christmas Carol for me. Not in terms of morality, but in terms of like Christmas tradition. Chef's kiss. I love it. Okay, who are we drinking this with? What celebrity are we hanging out with? Can I say Rizzo the Rat? 
Dude, no. Rizzo's hardcore. Maybe that's what we should do. Which Muppet are you drinking this with? Yes. Yeah. Which Muppet I mean, are you... literally, I would drink it with any Muppet. There's no Muppet that I wouldn't drink this with. I feel like Fozzie Bear would like this. I'm not mad about it. I feel also like um, Bunsen and Beaker would really appreciate this cocktail. And I think they're fucking rad and I want to hang out with them. So they're coming to my party. <laughs> Great. I love it. Um, in terms of real people, real human beings, Ugh, I would definitely drink this with Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza, obviously. Wow, you are going full in on these Christmas movie shenanigans. Okay. Uh, Look, I don't know if you heard, but we have a theme for the next three episodes. And I know how you love a theme. Fine, whatever. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink this then with... Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who was the voice of the Grinch in the latest animated adaptation. You know who else I would drink this with? Macaulay Culkin. I, he freaks me out. I don't want to drink anything. <laughs> I quite like him. Is this like your crush on like fucking Draco Malfoy too? I feel like this is in the same vein, girl. Yeah, it's right up Ooh. there. It's right Ooh. up there. It's like it's like the Venn diagram between Draco Malfoy, Macaulay Culkin, and Pete Davidson. There's what? something with no. all three of them. No. Oh. Oh God. Oh. Well, ladies, look. Maybe I'll cut that out, and we'll we'll unpack that later. No. There. No. Um. I feel like we need to tell everyone that the podcast is now over. You've killed us both. <laughs> Okay, well, with that, this is our dead podcast. <laughs> and what won't we be doing next time, Drea, since we no longer have a podcast? <laughs> since I've just owned you. <laughs> so next episode, we will be visited by the second of our Christmas spirits. And it is my pick. So obviously we're being visited by bourbon. So pick up your favorite American bourbon before then and watch the Instagram um, to see what the new recipe will be. So you will be ready to make your cocktail. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at two girls and a grape pod. That's T-W-O girls and a grape pod slide into those dms let us know what you're drinking um you can maybe tweet in at two girls and a grape that's the number two girls and a grape or you can it'll be a christmas miracle if she responds and you can also email us at two girls and a grape pod two girls and a grape pod at gmail.com so uh help spread some christmas cheer give us some ideas and if you've tried out this cocktail that we're featuring uh, this episode send us a pic send us your thoughts and we look forward to seeing your own christmas spirit shine through so until next time, salud. Salud. <laughs>